This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Isn't that a great question? Jesus' words in Luke 6.46 are some of the most convicting words in all of Scripture, in my opinion. If we really are his disciples, after all, we do need to do what he says. As the Lord stressed in John 14.15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And yet, how often do we really discuss the importance of obedience to the Lord as our king, and in fact, the king of kings. We're going to discuss it today with David Young, who is senior minister for the North Boulevard Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He's out with a new book called King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship. David, so great to have you with us. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Janet. Well, thank you for being here. You know, there are a lot of references, as people will know, to Jesus being king and the king of kings. We have Pilate asking him if he was king of the Jews, and they put that designation above his head on the cross. But Jesus also said, my kingdom is not of this world. So how do we understand this concept of Jesus as king? Well, a lot of us have been talking um, in recent decades about the kingdom of God and doing kingdom work and thinking about the work of God as a kingdom. And what I want to argue is that if you don't have a king, you can't have a kingdom. Right. And if you have a king, the proper response to a king is obedience. You don't just believe in kings, you actually obey kings. So what I'm arguing is that we reclaim the power and the beauty of being obedient to Jesus and looking at obedience not as a form of bondage, but as a form of liberation, a form of freedom, uh, a way to life. Right. Absolutely. I mean, Jesus said it himself, as I alluded to a couple of minutes ago, we have all kinds of admonitions in Scripture from the Lord that if you really love me and if I'm really Lord of your life and really King of your life, you'll obey me. How have we gotten away from that idea? Because this is so basic. I'm looking at the title of your book, The Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship, and I'm thinking it's kind of sad in a way that we have to go back and tell people discipleship involves obedience. What do you think has kind of gone wrong that people need that reminder? Yeah, you're so right about that. So uh, I think there's several things. One of them is that North Americans, um, we prize authenticity over obedience. Hmm. Uh, North Americans want to do it their way. Uh, we, we sort of have a rebellious spirit in us. Um, probably goes way back, but it's certainly been exasperated in recent years. So for a lot of us, the idea of being obedient we just think of that as some kind of a form of bondage, that, that there's something wrong with being obedient, that if I'm obedient, I can't live my life to its fullest. And that's a cultural thing in North America. But I also think there's a theological issue, which is uh, people get afraid that if you uh, focus on the obedience commands of Jesus, that you're somehow pushing a works-based righteousness or legalism. Right. And we have such a reaction against the idea of a legalistic church or judgmentalism that that we, we oftentimes conflate that with the idea of obedience. And so we want to separate obedience out and say, well, you merely believe or you, you act tolerant or inclusive of others, or you just love people and you don't have to worry about anything else. And 
that just neglects the text that you actually said, where Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my, you will obey my teachings. You will keep my teachings. Right, exactly. This is interesting because you're right. We are kind of in this antinomian age where, you know, oh, law, you know, we're not under the law. We can do what we want. We're saved by grace. But let's talk a little bit about this issue of Jesus as king, because we don't live, obviously, in a kingdom like, like people would understand perhaps in other parts of the world who actually do have a king or have had a king. We don't like royalty too much over in the United States unless it's a visit from the royal family or something like that. But how should we understand the, the whole structure of king and subject as it relates to our relationship with the Lord? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, again, you're right. 200, nearly 250 years ago, we fought a revolution to get out of royalty, to get out of a monarchy or a kingship. So yes. North Americans really don't have a, a good category for thinking about um, kingship, what it means to say Jesus is king. So we say he's our Savior, and that's true. We should say that. And we, we call him our Lord, and that's true. We call him Christ. But the Bible also calls him king. And so here's what a king gets to do. A king serves all three branches of a government. A king gets to decide what the laws are, so that's a legislative branch. A king gets to decide how to execute the laws, that's the executive branch. And then a king also judges whether or not we're living consistent with the law, which is the judicial branch. So when we say that Jesus is king, what we're saying is he has the authority to make the rules, he has the authority to enforce the rules, and he has the authority to determine whether or not we're living consistent with the rules. And when we call him king then, we really are identifying the one who has, as Matthew says at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Yes, right, in the Great Commission. And so we understand that passage that because Jesus has all authority, we are to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. Why why does Jesus emphasize that? Just to kind of break apart that section of the Great Commission where he gives that famous command to the disciples. Why does he stress that, do you think, saying all authority is given to me, therefore go? Uh, So this is what I've tried to unpack in the book, which is the idea that Jesus possessing all authority means that he now wants to claim every corner of creation. So he has all authority, but not every corner of creation is acknowledging his authority. And the way that the world comes to acknowledge the authority of Jesus, the authority he already has, is through making disciples. So when I lead another person to faith in Christ, that person then acknowledges the authority of the one true king of the universe. And here's the deal. At the end of time, when Jesus returns, every single knee, Paul says this, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, everyone is eventually going to acknowledge the authority of Jesus. Our job, our mission as the people of God is to give them a Jesus option before he returns so they can live a life consistent with what their king teaches. Well, yeah, this is so important. So when we're doing evangelism, we're keeping all of this in mind that we're not just suggesting, hey, I've got a great teacher for you. We're we're announcing a kingdom that is not of this world and the king who has rightful authority over it. Yeah, and and so I've been concerned um, in the last 20 or 25 years that evangelicals, many evangelicals have drifted leftward. And have begun to adopt uh, progressive values. So there's there's a, a a large stream now in evangelicalism of progressive Christianity yeah. that will talk about Jesus as um, a role model 
or as a, you know, a social justice warrior or uh, someone who went around challenging the status quo, but they have a really hard time getting their minds around the fact that Jesus is divine, he's king, that he's actually coming back as a king. So in uh, the ancient world, in the world of the Bible, when a king came to a town, he, he came as a conqueror, he came victorious, he came to be acknowledged as having all authority. And a lot of progressives just have a hard time with that. So that was one of my motivations. I just wanted to argue, no, no, if we think of Jesus as just another, you know, role model, social role model, in a lot of ways, he's really, he just becomes irrelevant. Mm -hmm. What makes Jesus important is that he's king, not just a teacher, not just a role model. He is a king. Yeah, great point. Absolutely true. And, you know, you hear a lot of this in the social media or wherever you happen to hear people talking about this. You'll often hear people say silly things like, well, my God would never dot, dot, dot if they come across something that Jesus has said that they don't like. Well, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that I know. Well, you don't get to choose your Jesus. There's one Jesus. He is king. We're under him. He's the potter. We're the clay. And we seem to have forgotten that sometimes. Yeah, we, the tendency, the human tendency, and I, I do think North Americans are pushing it now even worse than, than many cultures have. The tendency is to make our own sentiment king, that what I feel must be right is, well, that's going to be king. I'm going to follow <laughs> what I feel is true, um, how I interpret things, or, you know, what, what will sort of give me some kind of a rush or make me feel good about myself. And in the Bible, this is called uh, idolatry. It, it's lifting a fraudulent king or, you know, a body double or an imposter. And so one of, the things that, one of the things that we really have to do is get clarity on the Jesus who is and not the Jesus we might prefer. So Jesus isn't an empty uh, picnic basket, and you get to bring whatever goodies you want to and put in there. The, the, Jesus is who he is, and what we have to do is accept the Jesus who is and not try to invent a Jesus we might prefer. Very well said. I want to pick up on this on the other side of the break. King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship, the new book from David Young, who's with us. We'll come back right after this on Janet Meffer Today. Kevin Sorbo of the hit films God's Not Dead and Let There Be Light gives his thoughts on the scourge of abortion. One of the greatest attacks in America was an attack perpetrated by our very own Supreme Court. Now, subsequent to that, there have been 70 million babies slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers. That is more than the entire population of Canada and Australia combined. And that's why Kevin Sorbo also supports preborn. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. Will you join us in the cause for life? By letting a mother see her baby on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. For $140, you can help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. 
Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Boy, what an important discussion. Jesus is Lord, he is Savior, and he is also King. He has a kingdom that is not of this world, but he is King, and we see this all throughout Scripture. He is also the King of Kings. We need to remember this as Christians, that we don't get to just have a Jesus who makes us feel good or fits our sentiments, but actually, we need to focus on the Jesus who is and bow down before him. And this is the subject of King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship, the new book from David Young, who is Senior Minister for the North Boulevard church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and is joining us. This is a great thing to talk about. And I know in your book, you talk about the biblical descriptions of King Jesus, David, focusing on who Jesus actually is, beginning with his deity. Now, you would think the deity of Christ has been, you know, so solidified over the course of Christian history that you wouldn't have people even questioning this, but it's still around. And why do we begin there, that Jesus is the God of the universe? Uh, you're right. Uh, progressive, progressive Christianity in America really does challenge the idea of the deity of Jesus. And I think one reason why is because if Jesus is divine, if Jesus is God, then he is not just a teacher. He is the, he is the way. He's the only way. And for progressive Christians, that's an offensive thing to say. Yeah. Uh, Progressivism tends to want to be inclusive of all paths. Uh, it, it tends to want to be very ecumenical. And so when we say that Jesus is God, we're actually making an exclusive claim. And so all the way back for 200 years, progressive Christianity has wanted to downplay the divinity of Jesus uh, and leave really sort of this idea of all paths are available to God and, and everyone is essentially okay and whatever you think is the best path, well, that is the best path. And so the deity of Jesus has been a problem for progressivism for, uh, as I say, 200 years. Yeah, absolutely. But you have to start there if you're going to really deal with the Jesus who is. He's That's also right. the God of the Old Testament, as you point out. That's another thing that people get hung up on. Well, the God of the Old Testament is mean and I like the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> you can't separate the two. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There's that red thread running through the whole Bible. Absolutely. So when Jesus is called Emmanuel in uh, Matthew, the first chapter, which means God is with us, which God do you think that is? Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not uh, Apollo the God. It's not some pagan God like Baal or uh, Asherah. The only God who would have been with us is the God of the Old Testament. And so Jesus comes as the embodiment of the God that you've read all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. So there's not a bait and switch. There's not two gods. There's not six gods. Uh, Jesus comes as divine. He comes as the very God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the prophets, the God of Moses, the God of uh, the whole of the Old Testament, the God of David. And if we don't affirm that, here's, here, so here's what's happening. 
uh, there are again there are Christians who are offended by the Old Testament, and so what they what they have to do is to find some way to separate Jesus from the Old Testament. But when we do that, we're revealing our biases. Yes, because the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, they're a gift to us, as yes. Paul says. <laughs> right. They were written down for us for our sake. Yeah, exactly. And all of the Old Testament is foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah. I mean, you're you're omitting most of Christian history yeah. if you get rid of the Old Testament. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah. I, again, I think this comes back to the idea that there are many people who are maybe churched, but they don't really understand Christianity itself. So th- this idea that you talk about in the book that is so important about surrendering to his authority as king necessitates our dethroning ourselves, which I guess sin nature means we don't want to do that by nature. But what what are your thoughts on doing that, on the process of dethroning yourself and being subject to King Jesus? Well, it's difficult to do. Um, we're, we're, we are by nature uh, selfish people. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's an impulse in all of us to preserve ourselves and assert ourselves and make sure that we have all the things that we need. So when you talk about self-sacrifice, it, as Jesus does, he says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. That's a very counterintuitive thing for humans to do. Yeah. But, I, but what I want to say is that it's actually a, it's a form of liberation. So one of the illustrations that I like to use is um, Alabama football. So if you live in the state of Alabama, you know, football is your thing, and Nick Saban is your guy, uh, unless you're an Auburn fan. Saban is, I think he's five foot eight. Uh, but somehow Saban gets guys who are six foot eight and 300 pounds lined up to play for him, not because he says to them, you can play your own way or do your own thing, but because he expects them to obey and they become champions. Yeah, yep, yep. Right. So that that element has to be there that you you need to yield to the one who's in charge. Yeah. And when they do, these guys, not only do they become uh, national champions, they go on and make millions of dollars in the NFL. Again, not by doing it their way, but by following someone who knows what they're talking about. A great, awesome coach in the same way. Giving it up to Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, sacrificing to Jesus is the path to freedom. It's a path to victory. He knows us better than we do. He knows what we need more than we know. He knows where we're going better than we know. So giving it up to a king who loves you, there's nothing better than that. Oh, I agree. Amen. That's so good. So when you talk about immersing yourself in the life of King Jesus and people, when they go through your book, they can get the whole package of what you're talking about here. But how do you do that? How do you immerse yourself in the life of King Jesus? And how is that part of the pattern of discipleship? Well, there are two, two answers I'd like to give. The first one is to say that we measure everything in our life against the question of what does my king tell me to do? What does my king tell me to do with my money? What does my king tell me to do with my body? What does my king tell me to do with my relationships? What does my king tell me to do with my marriage? So, a real quick illustration. So my king has given me as a husband one job description. Love my wife as he loves the church. That's it. It's not a page. It's not, it's not ten pages. It's one sentence. <laughs> and so my king gives me the job description. My job is to figure out how to obey it. Right. Uh, so we just turn over every area of our life. But, but let me say this as well. It starts small. It starts with an act of discipline. Uh, anytime you're doing thing, things that are counterintuitive, if it's working out or dieting or trying to break a habit or uh, some sort of an addiction, you start with discipline, but then discipline becomes a habit. Habit becomes a character, and eventually your character becomes your destiny. So one step at a time, we surrender parts of our lives to Jesus, and he turns them into an awesome destiny. Yeah, that's good. And of course, you have to know the Bible to know what Jesus 
Jesus says. I know this sounds kind of stupid to say that, but when you look at some of these statistics that are out there about Bible illiteracy in the church, it seems like we even need to go back to Scripture first and and learn it so we know what our King wants us to do. Yeah, those last words. So I, I, I sort of built the book around the last words of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says, teach them to obey, and listen to this everything I have commanded you. So the expectation is not just that we obey Jesus, but we obey the representatives of Jesus, the apostles of Jesus. Those are the scriptures for us. The way that we obey Jesus is we listen to the scriptures. Yeah, that's right. We have to do that. So when you're talking about the problem a lot of Christians will have today with legalism or the fear of falling into legalism, don't we need to be clearer on what legalism is? Because a lot of people will just call legalism what they don't feel like doing. Well, I'm not legalistic, you know, and and yet there is a real legalism if you're, you know, getting commands from certain people in church to do things that aren't even mentioned in scripture, then you can fall into legalism. But what distinction would you make between actual legalism and perceived legalism that in fact are commandments that Jesus wants us to follow? So, yeah, that's another great question. So legalism can be the idea that if I work hard enough, I will make it to heaven because I work so hard. Yeah. We need to, we categorically reject that. That's anti-gospel. You can never work hard enough to make it to heaven. We're saved by grace Amen. through faith. So mm-hmm. we'll start with that one. The second thing is legalism is often characterized by a harsh judgmentalism, a fear, a sense that nobody is ever going to be good enough. We need to reject the fear and the judgmentalism that often accompanies a sort of a legalistic church or a legalistic attitude. And then third, I would say about legalism is it's the idea that my traditions are as important as the Word of God. Mm. So a lot of churches, um, uh, they let their traditions dictate what they're going to do. And that creates this fear of change. It creates this suspicion of anyone who's a little different of you. Uh, it, it creates division in the body of Jesus. And so I would say those three are examples of legalism. But obedience, that's nothing to do with these things. Obedience is what you do when you find a king who loves you and says, this is what's best, so do it. Yes, that's a big distinction that we have a benevolent king too, right? A king that laid down his life for us. It's not like we have some distant king who sits up on a throne and couldn't care less about us. And that's what we forget. He loves us, but because we love him back for what he did for us, we obey him. If If we don't get that all straight, then we will get very messed up in our thinking. Yeah, we have a king who loves us, a king who is, he's a shepherd king. He treats us like his sheep. He loves us. He holds us. He waters us. He makes sure that we have green pastures. I mean, he's the best of kings. So kings not only give orders, they also protect their people. Yes. Uh, You know, a good king is an awesome thing. A good king provides for his people. A good king directs his people. A good king has a standing army to make sure that they're not uh, hurt, a standing police force. Our king cares for us. So everything he does, he does because he loves us. That's so well said. So for a new Christian who might be listening and saying, well, I just came to faith in Jesus Christ and I'm a brand new believer. I want to obey my king. What is my next first step? I mean, it sounds so basic because it's obedience, but even for seasoned Christians who say, I don't think I'm obeying Jesus the way that I ought to obey him. What is the next first step for those Christians? My first response to that is to say, resolve. Which is which, and here's what I mean. But I, I have a friend. He's he's deceased now, but his house was was broken into while he was there. Uh, he was an uh, he was an orthodontist, but his house was broken into, and a guy was held a shotgun to his head, and he said, "Take me out to your car, and you're driving me to Mexico." 
this guy said to him, he said he had his wife and his daughter in the back room, and the, the criminal didn't know this. He said, I was going to keep them alive at all costs. So he said, this is what I said to the robber. This is really interesting. He said, I told him, all right, but speak real slowly because I intend to do everything you say. Hmm. It was his way of protecting his family. Wow. I would say adopt that attitude towards Jesus. The very first thing to say is, Lord, speak slowly because I intend to do everything you say, even if I don't understand it. Because oftentimes, understanding follows obedience. Good. That's so Uh, good. Through obedience, we learn things. It's through the experience of something that you come to understand it, uh, where we often think, well, I'm not going to do that. I don't understand or I don't agree with that. No, no, no. The first step is resolve. I'm going to obey my king no matter what. Speak slowly because I'm going to do everything you say. Love it. David Young, the book is called King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship. David, so great to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll be right back. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, the scenes out of Beirut, Lebanon of late have been horrific. You might have noticed this. It was just a couple of days ago that a huge fire broke out in the port in Beirut. And that was just weeks after that massive blast at the same site left hundreds of people dead and about 300,000 people homeless. And this in a country that has seen so much anguish already and has taken on so many refugees from the Syrian civil war. And it's why we're so thankful for what God is doing through Heart for Lebanon. They have been on the ground in the south and Bekaa Valley of Lebanon providing emergency supplies and Christian education and best of all, the gospel of Jesus to those who are in such desperate need of help and hope. And we are excited to be partnering with them once again at this very critical time. We want to reach out with the love of Jesus to 100 families at a time when the need is so great. Your investment of $116 will help two of those families to get the supplies that they need in order to survive over the next 60 days. Best of all, this is a tremendous opportunity to spread the gospel to a part of the world that desperately needs to hear it. So you can call now if you can give. It's 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. And we're going to check in now with Jack Hibbard with Heart for Lebanon to find out the latest. Jack, so good to have you with us. It's great to be with you, Janet, and so thankful for the opportunity to partner in what obviously is a very critical time for the country of Lebanon. Absolutely. Well, they have just taken hit after hit recently. What do you make of what has been going on over there in Lebanon? Well, you know, it's hard to it's hard to know what to make of it, Janet. You know, I've, I've thought for years, actually, as we you mentioned, we've been dealing with uh, what the UN had already called the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II, the refugee crisis. That's in Lebanon with over 2 million people from the country of Syria forced from their homes and settled in farmers' fields in just awful conditions. And then you put on top of that uh, a political crisis, a governmental crisis, an economic crisis. And then, of course, everybody knows about 
the explosion that took place just uh, several weeks ago. And then you mentioned uh, just recently another fire at the port, which you can only imagine how unsettled that was for the people who, many of whom still don't have doors and windows from Mm. that explosion from several weeks ago. And you look at all that and you go, what in the world? Like you said, what do you make out of this? How can you even figure this out? And you look at it from, I think, an outside perspective sometimes and think, boy, what a mess. But I am so grateful, uh, and the Bible reminds us of this in Romans chapter 8, that God specializes in taking a mess and making it good. And that's really what's happening in the midst of this. You know, we talk all the time about leading people from despair to hope, but we're actually seeing this. And somehow, and I don't understand this, Janet, and I don't know that any of us would ever choose this kind of methodology, but God in His providence uh, has a way of taking uh, terrible situations and bringing about um, glorious results. We're seeing that in the lives and in the hearts of, of Muslim culture people who, uh, at higher rates than ever in our generation, are, are placing their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ, because mm-hmm. these people obviously are at the end of their rope, many needing to just figure out how they're going to find their next meal or maybe even a place to sleep. And uh, through the generosity of listeners like yours, we're able to provide some of that hope that they need uh, to meet their, their physical needs first. But, you know, I love what Tom Adamar, our co-founder, often says, that if you, if you just give somebody a bag of food, a place to sleep, or a cup of cold water, all you have is a transaction. Hmm. And that's not what Heart for Lebanon is about. Heart for Lebanon is a relational ministry that wants to not only meet that physical need, but do it as in a way that provides us the opportunity to begin a relationship with these people. And it's through that relationship that we are having the chance and the opportunity, like never before, to share the hope that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Well, it's the most important thing, and you're right about that. It is good to give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, but you also have to think of their eternal salvation, not just their help and hope on the ground in the moment. And that that really opens some doors here. We have been talking about the greatest humanitarian crisis being uh, in Lebanon over the last several years, and now we've got these added crises with the pandemic and the economy and all the rest. What about the work of Heart for Lebanon? For the listener who's just hearing about your ministry for the first time, what is it that Heart for Lebanon does? If you are able to give today a gift to help one of these families, what is Heart for Lebanon actually doing for these families? Well, the first thing we do, obviously, is meet their immediate need. And we're doing that you know, through this explosion in Beirut, where we're providing supplemental food portions, working with a church partner, actually 15 church partners there in downtown Beirut to provide temporary housing and hygiene kits, helping them repair their homes in terms of putting uh, you know, just security up, windows, doors, things that were blown out. I don't know if people realize this. But the effects of that blast went five miles. So that tells you the magnitude of that explosion and the impact that this has had, as you mentioned, on almost 300,000 people. But again, the thing I love about Heart for Lebanon is it's not just about that temporary relief. It's about the eternal relief. And Janet, I think I'd like to illustrate, you know, you asked the question, what are we providing? We're providing hope, but I'd like to illustrate it in the in in a way of a story because this one is what really sticks out to me. It was one of the first times that I ever went to Lebanon, and I was sitting in a in a refugee's home, what they considered a home. It actually was an irrigation hut. In fact, as we sat there, water was running through what they would consider their living room, 
And it was a family that had come from Aleppo. A lot of people remember uh, that name, Aleppo, and all the destruction that took place in the Syrian war there. And as this family sat around and the family and the father started to share their story with us, and this is what's so foundational to Heart for Lebanon. Again, it's not just that supply. It's sitting in these tents. It's committing to these families month after month to be there. It's the relational part that's so important to us. So as we were sitting there, the father was sharing his story, and of course, I was listening to Arabic through a through a translator. A couple of things I noticed right away. First, I noticed that this man only had one leg. I came to find out how that happened, and I'll share that in just a moment. But the other thing that struck me was how joyful he was, how happy he was as he as he regaled this incredible story. He said that family got a knock on the door by the Syrian army, and they were told that they had 15 minutes to get out of their own house. Imagine that, living a normal existence. You get a knock on the middle of the door. The army says, 15 minutes, this house is ours. You guys get out. And that's exactly what happened. In 15 minutes, he grabbed everything that they could, including their children, and they ran for their life. And that father lost his leg because the Syrian army did start firing. And he he suffered injuries and eventually had to have that leg amputated. But as he was sharing his story, Janet, (laughs) I actually stopped the, the interpreter because I said, I think you got that wrong. Make him say that again. And he said to me in English, translated from Arabic, he said, this is the best thing that ever happened to us. (laughs) <laughs> hmm. I'm sitting there as an American looking at them in just despicable living conditions, and yeah. this man is saying the best thing. I said, ask him to explain that. He went on to say this. He said, listen, when we were in Syria, we knew about Jesus. We had heard the name of Jesus, but we never knew until Heart for Lebanon started to provide for our needs here and and, and start a relationship with us that we could have a relationship with him, oh. that we could know that our sins were forgiven and that we could have eternal life. He said, it's the best thing that ever happened to us. Oh, Found wow. out that entire family had given their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. So that's what I want people to know, Janet, today, is that as you folks stand in partnership with us today and you give that gift, yes, you are meeting the immediate needs of people who so desperately need it. You've seen the news. You've seen the videos that have come out of Lebanon. But more importantly, you're enabling Heart for Lebanon to start a relationship with these people where, you know, when we show up month after month, eventually the question gets asked, why do you care about us? We get to share the gospel with families just like that one in the back of that banana farm. So and they neat. get to know Jesus as their Savior. Oh, Jack, that is just so wonderful to hear that. And and boy, there is a joy in the Lord that no circumstance can quell. I mean, this is just incredible. And you have so many stories just like that. I want to remind people, if you can help a family over in Lebanon right now, just like that man's family that Jack was speaking about, we could use your help because we want to help 100 families and they desperately need your assistance. So your investment of $116 will help two of those families to get all that you've heard about the supplies and the gospel, everything that they need from Heart for Lebanon. 888-247-5499 is the number to call. $58 will help one family. Any amount you can give is great. 888-247-5499 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Jack Hibbard with us. Always good to talk to you, Jack. God bless you and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, Janet. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. We'll be right back on Janet Mefford today. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. 
As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Do you remember that big kerfuffle several months ago when Mark Golley, then editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, wrote that article saying Trump should be removed from office? And he inserted into this particular article all sorts of things that weren't true pertaining to Trump being guilty of his involvement with the Ukrainian president and some quid pro quo, which had Mark Golley been paying attention to all of the discussion that took place on Capitol Hill about the error in trying to find any kind of quid pro quo in that, then he certainly wouldn't have written such a silly article. Well, as it turns out, there is an update on Mark Golly. This is from Religion News Service. This is just amazing. Mark Golly, former Christianity Today editor and Trump critic to be confirmed a Catholic. Okay. No, it gets better. It gets better. They write about Mark Golly. They show a picture of Mark Golly with a priest taking communion with a mask on. I mean, I don't know how he's going to take communion with his mask on, but it says on Sunday, Mark Golly stood before Bishop Richard Pates in the Cathedral of St. Raymond Nonatus in Juliet, Illinois, to hear these words, Francis, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they talk about how he's decided to become a Catholic. His journey to Catholicism is notable in part because of the nation's political climate. What? Well, you got to keep in mind, this is RNS. A former Presbyterian pastor, Golly spent seven years as editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, the premier publication for evangelicals whose founder was the legendary evangelist Billy Graham. But for a few days last December, they note that he was perhaps the most well-known evangelical in the country because he dared to stand up against Donald Trump and evangelical supporters said he was misguided and out of touch, which those were the nicer comments. But now two months before the election with evangelical allegiance to Trump polling as strong as ever, 
golly, is leaving the fold. Okay, but I haven't even gotten to the good part yet. 68 years old. He says this is personal, not political. Is it about truth? Is it? I mean, it's personal. Okay. He, he had already decided by the time he wrote that editorial that he would quit the Anglican church he had attended alongside his wife, Barbara, for 20 years. Okay, let's just get this straight. He was an Anglican. He was, and it gets worse, but he was an Anglican for the last 20 years. He was not an evangelical. He was an Anglican. He was not going to a Baptist church. He was not going to an evangelical megachurch. He was not going to any denomination or individual independent church that would fall under the, the title of evangelical, according to historic evangelical doctrine. He was an Anglican. His conversion was one reason he decided to retire from Christianity today on January 3rd after 30 years as a writer and editor in the news outlet Stable of Publications. Listen to this quote. He said, I'm not rejecting evangelicalism. (laughs) When did you ever embrace it? When did you ever embrace it? He said this in an interview from his home and he said, I'm only taking Anglicanism deeper and thicker. Okay, well, that may be, but the question is, when were you ever an evangelical? And you go through the whole story. It turns out that before he was an Anglican, he was an Episcopalian. Before he was an Episcopalian, he was in the PCUSA from the mid-60s till 1989. Folks, the PCUSA is about as far from evangelical as you can get. It's mainline Protestantism, rejecting the inerrancy of Scripture, rejecting in many respects biblical truth on so many, so many issues. It's as far left as you can get, the PCUSA. Then he's an Episcopalian. Then he's an Anglican. Oh, yes, and for a time he attended an Eastern Orthodox church. When exactly was an even he an evangelical? And he was the editor-in-chief of the premier evangelical flagship magazine in the country, which has been horrible for years. But put that aside for a moment. This is like Franklin Graham having been the editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Register for the last 30 years. I mean, don't you think if you are going to be in charge of the magazine or the publication that represents the views of a particular religious group that you ought to be part of it? This, I mean, we're not talking about a daily newspaper where you would have a religion editor. I was a religion editor for a time. They actually gave me a hard time before I did that job because they were worried that as a Christian, I wouldn't be fair, which was hilarious. But <laughs> yeah, the atheists will be fair. I won that battle. But that's that's in the secular journalism world. If you have an evangelical magazine, should you not have an evangelical heading it up? Or am I crazy? And he went to Fuller, too. So that's another, that's another thing you can put on, on hold there. You know, Fuller Theological Seminary, not exactly the last bastion of conservative evangelicalism. So why wouldn't we have Mark Golly writing ridiculous things in the pages of CT for X number of years? And, you know, here's what's really funny about this. I'm looking at this article by Ed Stetzer, a Southern Baptist. He writes this, Evangelicals Becoming Catholics, former CT editor Mark Golly. And he says... Why, this is the subhead in the story, in Christianity today, mind you, why do evangelicals convert to Catholicism and how should we respond? Excuse me, that's not the story. That's not the story here. The story here is that you had the guy heading up the flagship evangelical magazine and working for it for the last 30 years. 
having never been an evangelical. Now, there is a mention in the RNS story that years ago, his mom got born again and they attended an evangelical church for a time, but he was born into Catholicism, went to an evangelical church for a time, but then went to Fuller and then started on his mainline liberal Protestant way into Anglicanism, into Catholicism. I don't know. I feel like that is kind of shifty, just kind of shifty. I think it's more than just kind of shifty. I think it's really, really shifty. What are you doing there? You're not, you're not representing evangelicals. And I would argue if you're not an evangelical, how do you understand them enough to report on them? What you do is you become antagonistic toward them because you're not one of them, right? Is that not what happens? If you have somebody who's not really an evangelical Christian, what is he going to bring to the table that, that is going to be of any value to evangelicals other than kicking us, which is what CT has been doing for how long now? It's amazing. And I'm reading through this whole piece by Ed Stetzer, and he's talking about, oh, well, you know, we've had people from evangelicalism converting to Catholicism, and there was this guy and this guy. Let's talk about this guy, National Exodus, Evangelical Exodus. This was this article, curiously enough, in the National Catholic Register talking about people leaving for Rome. They mentioned Scott Hahn, who's a famous convert, and he was actually a former Presbyterian minister, although I don't believe in the PCUSA. He was in a more, I think he was in the PCA or a more more conservative Presbyterian denomination. He goes on and on and on. Let's talk about people who convert to Catholicism. It's not the story. In fact, it's a dodge from the real story, which is evangelicals have been had. That's the story. In my mind, that's the story. We've been had. Somebody needs to go to CT and say, why was Mark Golly in that position? But nobody will. Nobody will, because I don't think there are any actual evangelicals reading this magazine anymore, especially after Golly's article ran in December. Who is reading this magazine except to critique it? I mean, I look at evangelical you know, articles all over the place. And I only look at CT to see what horrors are coming from it. Let's see, in the last month or two or three, they've talked about the fact that the church should start paying reparations to the black community. What what does that have to do with the Bible? And they interview, you know, Nate Collins, the founder of Revoice and talk about how great he is. They never called me for, you know, the side comment. Uh, anybody, you know, point counterpoint on that or anybody else who was opposing Revoice, But, you know, I would have talked to them. Any of the people from God's Voice would have talked to them since we were the ones who broke the story and opposed Revoice so much. Nobody called us. You know, they're they're calling, oh, no, Nate Collins is great. Anything liberal, anything progressive, anything in many ways apostate, Christianity today is totally on board. And now you know why. Now you know why, because you had a guy who was never an evangelical heading up the magazine. It's amazing. And then when you get to Ed Stetzer's end of his piece, he talks about, the fact that he was raised nominally Roman Catholic in a New York City Irish Catholic household. And then he talks about he attended a Catholic seminary while getting his MDiv and he's going on about himself. And then he talks about the fact that he's disappointed that Golly has now taken a different view of the gospel. Well, that's really not what it is. If you're denying sola fide, you're not read Galatians. All right. Read Galatians and look what Paul said about a different version of the gospel or a different take on the gospel. There's one gospel. There's one gospel. And sola fide is the gospel. Faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone through faith alone. So, I mean, can we go back to the Reformation? This is the gospel. It is because that's what the Bible says. We are saved by grace, through faith, because of Jesus Christ alone. And we can't do anything to contribute to our salvation. 
And that's just kind of, you know, that's just kind of a side issue. Kind of a side issue. He tips his hat to it. But mainly the story is how come people are, you know, converting to Catholicism? Well, maybe because they never understood the gospel in the first place. It would seem that way with Mark Golly, and that's the tragedy of it. And pray for the man. Certainly he's confused. He's jumped from church to church to church, and seems like he's still kind of looking. Unbelievable. Thank you for being with us. We will see you next time right here on Janet Meffer Today. Today.